Today's show is sponsored by Miracle Made. And oh my God, you guys, you know that I love a luxurious set of sheets. And I now have such a set of sheets because of a miracle made. They are bedding that has been inspired by NASA. They've got silver infused fabrics that actually make temperature regulating a thing. Uh, so you're not like getting too hot or too cold or whatever, you know, the whole thing that happens with your body's temperature losing its mind. Miracle made helps with that. One of the little things that my husband particularly loves about Miracle Made is that it like doesn't have as much bacteria as regular sheets because of it's infused with this silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth. So it leaves the sheets cleaner for longer. And then the thing for my husband is that it doesn't give him acne, which is like an issue for some people. But more than all of that, it's just luxuriously comfortable and delightful. And it has that cooling feeling while also being cozy. Very hard to achieve those two things at the same time. I mean, miracle made, come on, well done. So here's what I think you should do. I think you should go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and buy some sheets today. And if you order today, you can save 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation at the checkout and you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. So there's just a lot of savings here, folks. Order today, you'll get 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation. And Miracle's so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30 day money back guarantee. So if you're not 100% satisfied, which I don't see happening, um, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and use the code fake the nation to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash fake the nation to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. Fake the Nation, episode 219. Hello, hello, this is Fake the Nation, where we talk about news, we talk about politics, and where we marinate the chicken of democracy in a mix of olive oil, lemon juice, and just a dash of faith. And then we put it in the refrigerator overnight, and then the next day, we grill that chicken in the great backyard that is America. I am your host, Nagin Farsad, and today, we're celebrating the life of RBG, and we're grieved for the fact that we have to discuss the politics of it. We will also figure out, once and for all, the Latinx vote. I know, no other podcast has been able to do it, but today we're just like completely figuring it out. And finally, the future of the work week. Today, I'm joined by a bespoke panel that has been custom built for this very moment in our political and podcast history. It is a momentous panel. We have with us veteran of the show. We love him so very much. He's so fun. He's so funny. He's a comedian. He's an, he's an actor. He's a writer. You've seen him everywhere and everything, especially in New York City. Uh, one of the greatest cities in the world. Uh, we have with us the one and only Lou Gonzalez. Hey, Lou. Hey, how's it going? Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's been a minute. It's been a minute. So good to see you. It makes me feel so happy. I know. What a delight. And joining uh, us on the show today, this is a first time for Fake the Nation because this particular gentleman, 
You may know him because he was, you know, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under Obama. I mean, who wasn't? Uh, You may know him because he (laughs) ran for president. Um, You may know him because he is the host of the podcast, Our America. Folks, it's Julian Castro joining Fake the Nation today. Hey, Hey, good to be with y'all. Thank you for having me. You are the very first... um, presidential candidate. And oh my gosh, I was just saying um, to you guys off screen uh, that I just uh, subscribed to Our America and I just love the show. I know I say that I love a lot of things on this show because I only actually talk about the things that I love, but this show is so beautiful. It's really highly unexpected how inspirational and like lovely the show is. I don't know what I was expecting, but I just, it's its really entertaining. It's really inspirational. And anyways, you should immediately be subscribing to Our America. I really love it. So anyways, I'm glad, I'm glad you're just joining the podcasting world. No, thank you for that. Now, I'm having a lot of fun. Uh, doing it. And the team that we got at Lemonada is just just a fantastic job putting it together. Really compelling stories. And I hope folks will listen. Yeah, I think they'll get a good kick out of it. Well, thanks so much for joining the show. And we are going to hop right into it with topic number one. Okay, so this week, we lost a giant more than uh, just just a justice of the Supreme Court. (laughs) But an ultimate American patriot, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course it's sad that we've lost her, but this moment should also be celebrated because she had a long, powerful, and utterly impactful life. Um, And I mean, what an achievement. So before we talk about the, like, gross political stuff that we'll inevitably have to talk about. Um, let's talk about her legacy and and what you'll remember. I'll remember her as a trailblazer, someone who pushed our nation forward to live up to its highest ideals. I mean, she was a trailblazer in so many ways from being one of the uh, few women in her law school class at Harvard Law School in the 1950s Uh, transferring to Columbia Law School and graduating first in her class, uh, becoming an extraordinary litigator uh, on a number of issues, especially women's rights in the 1970s. She litigated, I think, six cases in front of the Supreme Court, and she won five of them. Insane. Yeah, I mean, founded the first journal in the United States that was exclusively focused on women's rights, became one of the very few... Um, tenured law professors uh, in her career at that time, tenured women law professors. And so you know, she she had accomplished so much even before she was appointed by Jimmy Carter in 1980 to the Court of Appeals and then by Bill Clinton in 1993 to the Supreme Court. And of course, you know, I'm grateful, like I know a lot of Americans are, for her or her work on the Supreme Court, whether we're talking about marriage equality, uh, protecting the Voting Rights Act, uh, protecting a number of civil rights, she was, I think, on the right side of history. It it really is like awe-inspiring. Just anyone, it, anyone is the first, and especially just dealing with people rejecting. Um, her because she was a woman um, uh, from the beginning, uh, from right out of law school all the way up until navigating um, the boys' club of the Supreme Court, the, just the boys' club of the United States workforce. Of life, yeah. Yeah, of life. I mean, <laughs> just dealing with that and and having to navigate also a, a, a world that existed 
with the mindset just as as the default that a woman's job is to support her husband. That's where she start that's what she grew up in and then discovering and then just like fighting for that equal rights. It's it's just equality. I think that's something that resonates with anyone who is a marginalized person and resonates still to this day. Um and it and also just like she was a beacon of like this is women's rights and also like a final beacon like sort of a i want to say like sort of like an icon yeah uh, yeah she was to, definitely an icon uh I, what's the word icon <laughs> uh, and and just to see especially like as trump was elected and just all of his rhetoric she was someone that people look to and be like you don't yeah. go. <laughs> ladies, uh, hey, ladies, if you have a credit card, it's because of her. If you've ever leased an apartment in your own name, it's because of her. If you played sport in a school, you know, these things, there's so many things that she did um, with those cases that have had that effect on our lives as women. So I think that's really, um, yeah, she, it's really remarkable. Uh, now, let's just get into the like, shit pile of the politics, um, unfortunately. So her loss leaves a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Um, do you think, uh, Secretary Castro, do you think that vote, I mean, you you probably know some of these people. Um, so do you think that that vote is going to happen before the election? Um, do you think it'll happen in the lame duck session if there, if, if so happens that uh, we have a new president, um, what do you think is going to happen with this vote? I mean, this already uh, has turned into, um, you know, the most political process that we could have imagined, mostly because it's uh, another example of the hypocrisy of Mitch McConnell and these Republicans. Because everybody remembers last time what they said when Barack Obama appointed Merrick Garland during that during 2016, a uh, few months before the election, I think it was about 240 days before the election, from Mitch McConnell to Ted Cruz to any number of Republican senators said, no, 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 you can't do that when we have an election coming up in just a few months. We should wait for the American people to have their say in that election and then let that president that's elected make the nomination. Because of that, they held up Mar Merrick Garland basically ripped off a seat from President Obama. Now they've completely changed their tune and they want to give Trump his nominee. And not only that, they want to do it ASAP. It's total hypocrisy. hypocrisy. Really, it's, it's, it's abuse it's of the system. Yeah, I mean, it's an abuse of the system under a constitution. It's plain games. But here's the thing. The problem is we got all of these politics. We got them playing games, abusing the system. And the stakes are... One week after the election on November 10th, the Supreme Court is going to hear the latest challenge to the Affordable Care Act uh, and whether it's constitutional. And they're going to rule on that in June. Tens of millions of people could lose their health insurance because these folks want to stack the deck, you know, to do right wing things. And they're doing it with such hypocrisy. I mean, it's amazing. And I'm, you know, I'm happy that that the Democrats are pushing back as hard as they can on this, because I think it would be the wrong thing to do. And if, 
you know, they continue to abuse a system like this, then I agree with some people that have called for structural reforms to make sure that this doesn't happen again. It's insane. Well, it's first of all, I I re uh, listened to the Mitch McConnell clip where he was like, basically like Merrick Garland, there will be no vote on Merrick Garland because he made this like impassioned speech about why it was inappropriate. (laughs) And um, and it's I I mean, my blood boiled because he's such a great Actor, And I think that's what's really frustrating is that he's in the wrong profession. Uh, he really <laughs> should use those skills uh, to get an Oscar, you know what I mean? And not to ruin democracy. So I really think Mish McConnell has been misguided just in his life choices in that way. Uh, Lou, what do you feel uh, is is going to happen? <laughs> well, I'm really hurt that you guys are really ragging on my boy Mitch. You know, he always seems like an upright <laughs> person. <laughs> You know, he's always honest. Um, I've never seen him do things for his own purposes. Um, I mean, I mean, I've never seen it. I've read it, um, and I've heard it, and I look away because um, he's so evil that it hurts watch. my eyes. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's. I mean, he is who he is, and um, I think like he really sh- showed. Exactly. I mean, I think everyone knew he was going to go through with it. I don't think anyone was like, oh, well, maybe he'll... No, everyone was just like, yeah. Because especially a huge focus of his has been just um, flooding the judiciary with conservative um, ideologues. I mean, he's been doing that in the circuit courts. Um, Yeah. That's been a huge focus. Um, uh, And that impacts so much of what's going on like and having that impact uh, in the supreme court um we'll say one thing he's no dummy like he has a plan <laughs> um, well, and, and then the other frustrating thing lou is not not only that he's no dummy but also you know he's within his constitutional rights right like there nowhere does it say in the constitution that you can't uh, have another um a, a vote uh so the question i want to ask um is the question on everybody's mind which is court packing uh how possible so, so let's say i mean so many things have to go in a certain direction for court packing to even be a question um but let's say they do uh you know, someone, they bring on someone um, who there's the, the leading figure is uh, Amy Barrett. Uh, what's her name? Oh my God, I'm blanking on her name. And I did not write it down. Um, but the, the leading person that they're looking, one of the, the leading person in the pack to become a uh, justice of the Supreme court is Amy Coney Barrett. There it is. Amy Coney Barrett. And um, they, uh, you know, she's really conservative. She said some things, you know, anti-Roe. So let's say the the Supreme Court does in fact become a six to three leaning conservative court. Let's say Biden wins the election. Uh, Let's say the Senate is controlled by Democrats. Let's say we can pack the court. (laughs) Um, Secretary Castro, you think that's a good idea? Uh, Well, look, I've said that I think for a lot of us, that wasn't our first preference, right? Um, Yeah. But- The issue is that Mitch McConnell now has abused this system under the Constitution with flagrant hypocrisy 
And that the stakes, because of that abuse, the stakes are that tens of millions of people may lose their health care, that uh, uh, women may long, no longer have reproductive freedom in this country, that the Voting Rights Act will likely get eviscerated. When those are the stakes, and those are the stakes because of an abuse of the system, then yeah, I think the Democrats should consider how you ameliorate that um, with structural reforms, including considering expanding the court. This is not the first time that, you know, that would have been considered in our nation's history. Uh, there may be other ways that you can prevent this kind of abuse, but all of those structural reforms should be on the table as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's interesting because I know like court packing seems like this ominous term. And every time it's come up in America, you know, since I was a kid in school, I remember reading, you know, about um, FDR's attempt to do some court packing. It was brought up in this ominous way, you know. But to me, I don't actually... I don't even I don't actually see it as a big deal. I mean, uh, Pete Buttigieg, I remember, talked about this during the um, primary elections that, you know, it shouldn't be an existential crisis every time we have to put someone on the Supreme Court. You know, it shouldn't be that one person has so much effect on how the court votes and that if we did have a larger court, it wouldn't be as big of a deal. So part of me is swayed by that kind of argumentation, like that this shouldn't feel so awful, you know? Uh, Lou, where do you stand? Obviously, people are going to argue against it, but I think this country was built on making adjustments. I mean, there's a reason why there's amendments. There's a reason why the system is in place and it is to make changes as the world changes, as things happen. And if people are going to abuse and find ways to skirt around uh, uh, the, the rules that have been set forth, it makes sense to make adjustments. I mean, technically you could say two Supreme Court spots have been hijacked by yeah. Republicans. I mean, that would be an argument. That's, an, that's a harsh argument um, if you... Um, don't look at the facts, but, <laughs> uh, and so like, yeah, adjustments need to be made. I mean, I don't know when we first started, black people were a fraction of a person. So an adjustment needed to be made. <laughs> like, right, 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 right. Like they were like, Hey, I don't know if black people are a fraction of a person. They're like, interesting point. Let's, let's fix this a little, I guess. Right. So it's like, that's, no, the, that's, that's the point of right. this. And, and so, even right now, I mean, like the, the Senate Democrats currently represent 15 million more people than the Republican majority, right? So again, adjustments need to be made because there's already these crazy misalignments baked into the system, right? That it's crazy that Senate Democrats who are a minority in the Senate represent 15 million more people than the Republican majority. I mean, these things were baked into the the Constitution in a way that was uh, they were, you know, needed to be edited. <laughs> they needed to have a nice copy edit on the dock they missed that edit opportunity. So now here we are. Um, and I think, you know, again, you're right, like balancing that back out is not a terrible idea. And I don't think it's so, I don't even think we should present it like it's crazy. You know what I mean? I personally, I mean, and, and you know, and, and I think like for someone like Joe Biden, it is like 
such a you know, 11th hour move. Um, but uh, I am sort of like, I'm okay with it, guys. I don't know. And maybe I'll sing a different tune. But uh, I, yeah. for right now, it feels like a decent plan if we have one. Uh, at closing thoughts on this, um, Secretary Castro, do you think uh, Mitch McConnell's going to go forward with, a, with this before the election? You know, I think he is. And um, I hope that especially people who live in places like Colorado, where Cory Gardner's in a tight race, the Republican incumbent there, or uh, Martha McSally in Arizona, Susan Collins in Maine, John Cornyn here in my home state of Texas, and Mitch McConnell himself in Kentucky. Uh, I hope that people remember this over the next few weeks and that they vote accordingly and that uh, Democrats recapture the Senate and are able to, um, you know, make the kind of reforms and investments that we need to make so that everybody can prosper in this country. So uh, I, I just think we shouldn't let Mitch McConnell get away with this kind of abuse again. I will leave it on that note. Uh, we're going to take a quick break to hear about our sponsors. And then when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the Latinx vote. This HeadGum Podcast is brought to you by Aura Frames. That is right. Uh, from grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, even the friends of your life, every mom loves an Aura Frame. Holy shit, even aunts? Yes, especially aunts. Oh, well. Because it was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. I mean, these Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. I believe it. You have an Aura Frame, don't you? Yes, I actually more than believe it. I know it. Uh, I've got one for my mom, my mother-in-law, my grandmother-in-law. And dare I say your aunt? And dare you say my aunt and my aunt-in-law. Everyone's got one. Everyone loves them. I mean, Mother's Day is right around the corner, and there's no better gift than a digital photo frame. You give them the frame. It's got preloaded pictures in there. And you know what? You can update it with an app. So every time you take a new picture of a sweet little uh, person or place or thing in your life, it gets automatically sent to that frame. Exactly. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. Holy smokes. Excellent deal. Yeah, that's A-U-R-A Frames.com. You use the code HEADGUM at checkout to save. HEADGUM. Nice. Yes. Headgum. It's easy to set up. It's loved by everybody, including Oprah, including your aunt. Mm -hmm. So do check them out. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code headgum at checkout to save. Damn right. And terms and conditions apply, of course. Of course. Thanks again to Aura. Today's show is sponsored by Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It monitors your spending. It helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. I have used Rocket Money. And you guys, honestly, I had no idea how many things I was subscribing to that I didn't want to be subscribing to. I think we all go into, we enter into subscriptions with a Pollyanna view that we're going to use as a subscription, even though it's a super obscure, you know, education app from Albania that uh, teaches Russian math or whatever. And then you're like, I'm never going to use this. Why did I get it? I should remember to cancel it. And then you don't. 
And I know you guys are like me and I know you've done this to yourselves. And guess what? 75% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about. So we're all in this bucket. And I think paying for that stuff is so angering and Rocket Money is there to help because basically Rocket Money shows you, hey, look at this is what all the things you are subscribed to. But then here's the bigger thing. To unsubscribe, you don't have to go through the whole rigmarole. Rocket Money unsubscribes for you with a click of a button. It's so easy. The other thing Rocket Money did for me, which I was incredibly grateful for, was reduce the cost of one of my bills. It was my cable bill. Yes, I still have cable. Rocket Money has over 5 million users that have saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I mean, that tracks for me and for the number of things I was paying for that I'm frankly ashamed of. So thank you, Rocket Money, for like fixing the shame glaze on my life. Uh, so stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash fake the nation. Again, that's rocketmoney.com slash fake the nation. Rocketmoney.com slash fake the nation, you guys. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Folks, I feel like I've mentioned this before, but I tried other services that I was displeased with. And then a neighbor of mine was trying Factor. I had pulled them aside in the hallway and I was like, what are you feeling about this Factor? And they were like, it is delicious. You should definitely do it. So then me and my husband did it and we loved it. They are chef-prepared meals that arrive to your door, and then in two minutes, you could be eating them. Like, it's so simple, and they're actually delicious. And for people like me who just sometimes, my schedule can be so maniacal between traveling in different cities and, you know, doing stand-up gigs. It's like I just don't have a typical schedule where I can plan, set aside time for cooking and all that stuff. So something like Factor really helps for me. The other thing that I love to do is try not to eat carbs. <laughs> so they have a keto option, which is fantastic. It's super delicious. They use premium ingredients. You can get stuff with like filet mignon and shrimp and truffle butter and broccolini and asparagus, right? Like real ingredients. They're no fuss, no mess meals. Um, they eliminate the hassle of having to prep. They're tailored to your schedule. Um, you can customize your weekly meals uh, with flexibility. You can pause or reschedule. I've actually done that. I've, pa I've both paused and rescheduled. Um, Factor is basically your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. And look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. So here's what I think you should do. I think you should head to factormeals.com slash fakethenation50 and use the code fakethenation50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code fakethenation50 at factormeals.com slash fakethenation50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. 
Here we go with topic number two. So, um, the Latinx vote in this country is a big deal. Uh, 32 million Latinx voters are eligible to vote, surpassing the number of black voters for the first time, which I actually didn't realize. Um, so now I'm going to treat the two of you like you know every Latinx voter in America, right? You know all of them. <laughs> well, most um, white people assume I'm all of them. So that's <laughs> that's cool with me. Nothing new. Um, so, okay. So... and. I know that everyone wants to treat the Latinx vote like it's a monolithic vote, the way they want to treat Iranian-American votes that way, which there's five of us and we're even the five of us can't agree on anything. Um, So please forgive me for this first question, which is um, what issues are important for Latinx voters? Well, I think, you know, there is a a difference um, because it's not a monolithic community, as you say. I mean, you know, you talk to folks who are living in Florida, uh, Cuban Americans and Venezuelan Americans versus the Puerto Ricans there or Mexican Americans in the Southwest of Texas. I would say generally uh, people are focused right now on these bread and butter issues like their healthcare, their child's education in this new virtual learning environment. Um, They're focused on job opportunities, small business opportunities, And then, of course, on an issue like immigration, the policy around that. So, you know, I think for Democrats, the challenge is, okay, you need a full court press over these next 42 days to mobilize uh, Latinx voters every single place that we can, recognizing the nuance within the community, recognizing that Trump is probably having a little bit more success right now with the Cuban-American community and Venezuelan-American community, throwing the word socialism around, trying to scare people about what Joe Biden uh, represents, distorting the record of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. That's not resonating quite the same way in heavily Mexican-American states like Nevada, Texas, or Arizona, clearly. Uh, you know, but just recognizing that nuance and then doing everything that we can to deliver a strong message and to get people out to vote. You know, it's funny. There was, um, I was reading an article that basically said conspiracy theories and uh, are really flourishing in Spanish language media and social networks in Florida specifically. And it's all the conspiracy theories like you can imagine, right? Democrats are pedophiles, like George Soros controls our minds or whatever it is. Um, Lou, can you explain why those kinds of conspiracy theories are like flourishing in Florida among the Latinx voters there? Um, uh, chisme. Everyone loves chisme. And that's essentially gossip. <laughs> that's what that means. They just like, did you hear this shit? Did you hear what happened? And so like, that's, I think that's a people thing. People, and also people expect the worst. And so if you tell someone the worst about someone, they're like, sounds about right. Knew it. Knew it. Right, Can't right, trust right. them. So I think that's something that also exists. Also, it's Florida. It's in the water. <laughs> like, no offense. But like, I mean, every time something wild comes up, there's one state that always happens to pop up. You know, and so (laughs) that's also something that exists there. Um, I think I think it's also social media We're, we're, you know, Latinx people use social media. And I think also like everybody else, like everyone else. It's like we're people we're victims to this country's um, software, you know, we're victims to uh, blatant homophobia. We're victims to racism. Like that's going to happen within 
our communities because that happens to every community. Um, and the, and, and I'd, I'd like to point out, uh, if Russian trolls are out there promoting this stuff, uh, they're equal opportunity. They like to promote to Latinx voters, black voters, white voters. You know what I mean? They're not going to like, um, you know, not spread conspiracy theories uh, just because it's Spanish language conspiracy theories. Yeah, that IP address is still in the States. It's still in the States. Um, and I, well, there's one, one straight thing that I, I was reading about uh, from uh, the pollster Eduardo Gamara, who said that um, there's a lot of uh, that these conspiracy theories are kind of flourishing because, quote, there's a strain in our political culture that's accustomed to conspiracy theories, a culture that's accustomed to coup d'etats. Um, and I, that really resonated with me because there's a lot of Iranians who, you know, Look, I, I'd say most of the Iranians I know are, are voting for Biden, so I'm not I'm not trying to besmirch. But like, there is this strain of Iranians that I know who are like, just don't trust the state. They don't trust this. They don't trust that. And they're a little bit more prone to conspiracy theories because they've seen some shit in Iran, right? They've seen um, revolution. They've seen government, mis- you know, murdering people. Like they've seen all of that. Right. So they're just a more prone to not trusting, uh, trusting stuff. It also seems like um, through Facebook and YouTube, especially that a combination of, of Russian trolls and, and maybe, you know, also political operatives here in the United States on behalf of Trump, even if they're not directly associated with him, uh, they're preying, I think, on people who essentially are mostly apolitical. And there's so many of us mm-hmm. in our country right, right. now that don't have a, a good grounding in civics education, in sorting these yep. things out. And I don't mean that to be, um, you know, condescending or putting people down. What I what I do believe, though, is that you know, a lot of people don't have time for politics or they haven't jumped into it or, or really researched it. And then you have these things that are targeted at them in a compelling way. And as you know, with these algorithms, they start off, they click once, they click twice, and then you start going down a rabbit hole of information. Yeah. And I've seen it over and over again in the Latino community, even here in Texas. And so there is something to that. It is going on. And it's that the scary thing is it's hard to determine because you really, unless you talk to one of these folks and I have, um, you know, to more than one, you really can't tell that that's happening unless somebody in your family shares it on Facebook or, or something like that. Right. For everybody that shares it like that, there are probably at least two or three other people that, that either believe it or half believe it. And I think the goal with the Latino community for them is not necessarily to convert them to Trump. It's to suppress the vote. They just want to suppress the vote for Biden. And in that sense, you know, I mean, depending on how close these states are, and Florida is always a close state, we really have to be worried about that. You know, it's so interesting that you talk about that because the national average on undecided voters is about 3%, right? It's really low. Everybody knows who they're voting for. But there was a a Quinnipiac and Monmouth poll recently that found out that 38% of registered Latino voters in 10 battleground states um, may be ambivalent about even voting. Um, Secretary Castro, you like you said, you've you've talked to a lot of these people. Why would they be ambivalent about voting? 
Well, I think part of it is the disinformation that's happening. Um, and now I think the Biden campaign and the DNC are very focused on the, the Latinx vote. Uh, but I think for a lot of this cycle, the intensity just wasn't there. You know, there wasn't the kind of intensity given that you have a community that whose turnout rate has been historically about 15 to 20 points lower than non-Hispanic right. whites and then African-Americans in the last couple of cycles. So I'm glad the intensity is there now and they're spending the resources to reach uh, Latinas and Latinos, especially in swing states like Florida. Um, and, you know, they just need to keep pushing. You know what's really interesting, too, and I, I was really surprised by this, the largest gap um in terms of issues is on climate change. So 60% of Latinos, but 42% of U.S. adults cited as a very, of um, of U.S. adults in general, cited as a very important issue while they're voting for president. Um, I found that surprising. Was that surprising to either of you? Yeah, I mean, to me, so you're, the, the poll you read had uh, Latinos caring about that more. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry, no, I think yeah, I mean, I, that was confusing. Oh, okay. Latinos yeah, care have, about climate change more than the average American. And I, I found that surprising. I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah, it's so interesting. And 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 I, I, Lou, do you have any? Uh, <laughs> I just theories? you know what? It's always I, I I always hate like like dabbling in polls because these are people who you cold call during the day and like these are the icons who were basically <laughs> basing this information off of. It was like oh, this by their phone the line, day and their then, landline, and yeah, yeah, yeah they got right, a landline right, right. phone. They're ready to talk, and I was like, I don't know if this person represents me, but okay. Um, but I do think that I think climate change is a real thing. I think it's also something that in terms of in the Latino population, we definitely ha are seeing it more because we do a lot of labor work. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that right. I mean, that's our place in society. We, we're, I yeah. mean, when you really think about it, a lot of us, um, uh, within the past 50 years, we're yeah. mostly second generation, first generation. We're, we're we're a very we're growing because we're coming here, um, yeah. and I think and the jobs that we're getting are labor work, and so we're noticing it. <laughs> you, you know, know it's an excellent an point. And, and and at last week when we were talking about the wildfires with uh with Margaret Cho and Sean Ramaswaram, we and that was just a me bragging that Margaret Cho was on the show uh, because I've liked to follow up uh, really famous comedians with presidential candidates and uh, secretaries <laughs> of housing and urban development. That's just the kind of show I run. It's not a big deal, guys. It's really fabulous over here. Um, but I wanted to point that someone pointed out actually, that, um, you know, in the middle of all these wildfires that are consuming the West Coast, you know, one of the groups that nobody is talking about are, um, you know, migrant workers and farm workers who are outside, who have to breathe in this smoke. It's not like they get to go home. Nobody is trying to send them home, even though the air quality is bad. And so I think you're absolutely right, Lou, that that is something um, that we, that that maybe, you know, that we're maybe seeing with this, um, with this this difference in the, the climate change numbers. Um, I want to close this segment on asking you guys about something else, which is that, uh, so we read a piece um, and these campaign experts um, 
who worked with these pollsters found that if you want to move the needle with Latinos, you kind of have to move away from race rhetoric. Like you have to tie the battle away from talking about white people and whiteness and privilege and instead talk about powerful elites who benefit from divide and conquer politics. Um, That essentially like not all Latinos even view themselves as people of color. Uh, Secretary Castro, is that something that you found either, you know, in your own family or with the people that you've uh, come across in your work? I mean, certainly you have um, Latinos who who see themselves, some who see themselves more as white. Uh, you know, for, for a long time, the census basically made you choose that you're white, right? There wasn't right. A, another category. Right. And so, I mean, there's a whole history there. But yeah, I would say it definitely runs the gamut. It definitely runs the gamut. And I think that generationally, you also see some differences. People yes. who have been here a shorter amount of time versus people who have been here, you know, three, four, five generations, the long, it's, at least from what I've seen, the longer that people have been here, the more they may tend to see themselves as assimilated and be assimilated and and politically reflect that. I think that you can't go wrong uh, in appealing to the, the Latino community by summoning the best of what the country can be. And then, you know, focusing that through things like raising the minimum wage and, uh, investing in education and healthcare opportunity and uh, job opportunities because it is a very hardworking community. It's a very aspirational community, regardless of the generation, um, regardless of whether you're in Florida or in Colorado or California. So there's a lot to work with there for Democrats and a very strong story that we can tell. Uh, the Affordable Care Act expanding health care to more than 4 million Latinas and Latinos is a perfect example of that, that Joe Biden can use, I think, very powerfully. He's the one that wants to expand that coverage. And Donald Trump is in the Supreme Court right now trying to get rid of it. So there's a lot to work with there. Uh, Lou, Bernie said in 2016, we shouldn't talk about race so much. Um, does any of this with respect to the Latino community make did did Bernie have a point? Um, with all due respect, Bernie should shut up <laughs> about that. Like, like well, it was I, like I four years it, ago that he said it. Yeah. But I, but, um, but I, when I read all this, I was like, oh, that's interesting. But you know what it is? I mean, it's rooted in anti-blackness. You know, Latinos do not want to be looked as a person of color because a person of color is a black person. When you look at the way black people are treated in this country, you don't want to be that. You don't, and you look also as whiteness as attaining. Uh, success. That is something that, and assimilation is also huge. There's right, so right, many, right. there's so many second generation um, Latinx people who just don't speak Spanish because their family's like, we don't, we don't want you to look like another. Right. There's so much, there's so much when you enter this country in order to attain the quote unquote dream, it's supposedly viewed in a certain way. Now, obviously that's wrong, but when you're entering and you're trying and you're also living in terms of wanting success, what's being presented to you and what success is looks a certain way, acts a certain way. And especially with uh, a, a group and as diverse like as Latinos. Pitt. Huh? Yeah. 
And looks he said like it Brad looks Pitt. like Brad Pitt and it's trying to date Jennifer Aniston. And that's what we all, yep. <laughs> and I say that as someone, right, as a child of immigrants too, because I think it's funny, like I didn't realize for a long time, my parents didn't realize that they weren't white. You know what I mean? And, and I was like, nobody thinks that you guys are white, you know? And they're like, what do you mean? And, and I, and it, so there is like, you know, you were saying Secretary Castro, there's a generational difference. Um, and there's also, there, there, there's also this, you know, this belief, I think, from a lot of my um, immigrant communities in general of like, no, 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 you work really hard and then you just turn into um, Bill Gates and like, that's what happens. You know what I mean? And that's the American dream. And so I think the 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 race discussion kind of com- like complicates in the, that vision in a way that, you know, that generationally some um, members of the immigrant community are just like, don't want to engage in, you know, which I totally get, you know what I mean? I mean, I get it because my parents were like that, um, you know, and then, you know, now they they have a black son-in-law and everything changed for them or whatever. And now they're like Black Lives Matter, which is fantastic because they've evolved. Um, but uh, but it is really interesting to kind of see uh, to see how we all are, are uh, how these different immigrant communities are handling race in the within that within themselves yeah i mean there's also and my brother and i discussed this uh in the first episode of my podcast i talked about my family story there's also an internalized oppression right i mean among uh, just speaking for my experience in the mexican-american community of uh, you know of seeing yourself as lesser than right the browner you are the less white you are the further away you are from that ideal and um, whether it was uh, people being being made to feel ashamed of speaking Spanish or the food that they ate or the color of their skin. And you can write that story for different groups that have been here in the United States and are here. Um, but we saw that very clearly growing up on the west side of San Antonio, which was overwhelmingly Mexican-American and mostly first, second third generation Mexican-Americans. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and again, subscribe to that podcast because it's lovely. <laughs> Let us, uh, thanks you guys um, for for uh, figuring out the Latino vote. I'm not sure if we figured it out, but we certainly complicated it. Oh my gosh, you guys, before we get into topic number three, I just wanted to let everybody know something I'm really excited about, which is that we have some election-themed merch available. We have a t-shirt. It's available for a limited time. And it says, we're only doing optimism on the front. And then it says, fake the nation on the back. Uh, So you should get this t-shirt for yourself or someone you love who is a pessimist and needs some optimism because we're only doing optimism. And now we even have a t-shirt to prove it. So folks, go to podswag.com slash fake. That's podswag.com slash fake. And you'll be able to get this t-shirt limited time. And we also have a new mug that says, don't talk to me till I've had my fake the nation. So that is also available, but that will just like be available. And then the t-shirt is a limited time election specific offering. Um, And I love it. And I hope you love it. And I hope you get it. And it'll help the show. All right, folks, uh, let us move on to topic number three. Uh, So a few months back, Jacinda Ardern, everyone's favorite prime minister out of New Zealand and the only prime minister out of New Zealand that anyone has ever heard of, floated the idea of a four day work week. Um, What I so let's just start with uh, now that there's been this pandemic and um, we've seen a lot of things about the American workplace sort of shift and change. 
do you think it's possible for there to be a four-day work week? Secretary Castro. Oh, I hope so. I also hope the work week is like you can still wear your shorts, even if you have to wear, you know, like a, a nice uh, shirt or blouse and <laughs> or blazer on top and <laughs> have your shorts and tennis like on. people are going to and, the office that you know, way. And your drink right next to you that nobody can see. That, that, that would be a very nice work week for folks to be able to keep. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I hope so. I mean, as you know, another a, a number of other countries have already embraced different types of work weeks. Also, I mean, we could start with some more uh, paid leave the United States is, is so behind when it comes to allowing folks paid leave uh, versus many European countries that four weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks in some places. And for the betterment of our nation, for the health of our people, it makes sense to expand paid leave and then also look at reforms to the work week and to those farm workers that we were talking about a minute ago, to those meatpacking plant workers, um, fast food workers, to raise their pay and raise their working conditions. They really stepped up and have been for a long time, but especially in our time of need. And if there's a silver lining that can come out of all of this, I hope that enough Americans see how they step up every day, that that's going to propel forward a willingness, a political willingness to finally pay them what they deserve and put benefits into their, their, you know, family that they deserve. I love that you brought that all up because I think part of this discussion about moving into a four-day work week envisions a particular white-collar worker in a particular, you know, in the in the kind of creative class, in the in yeah. the in, in in financials, in the financial sector, and the, you know, these kind of cubicle jobs or whatever. Um, so that's who we're sort of talking about when we're talking about a four-day work week. We're like definitely not talking about like a major, like the vast majority of you know minimum wage workers, all of the essential workers that you mentioned, healthcare workers. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. Why leapfrog to the four-day work week, which does, by the way, sound delightful, but we're sort of leapfrogging over a bunch of other things that are more important, like, and I, listeners remember this when I had a baby, uh, like I complained aggressively that there was no maternity leave in the United States. Um, I'm a freelance worker, so there was just sort of like me jumping off of a cliff with no social safety net. You know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. what having a baby is in America. Um, so, you're doomed if you're a woman because you you then are play, put into this. Not only do you have a baby with no social safety net, but then you also have to pay. I mean, I had to pay an upwards of $2,000 to have the baby in a hospital, right? And I have supposedly great health insurance, right? So we this is how we're treating, um, ha you know, half of the workforce who may want to have children or have had children. Um, and so let's, uh, I think you're absolutely right that we should focus on some of these other things <laughs> first um, or in addition um, to the four-day work week. Lou, uh, like me, you are a dirtbag comedian. Where do you stand <laughs> on the four-day work week? I mean, I am a dirtbag comedian, but, you know, like if we did have a four-day work week, I know uh, Ulian said he was going to like dress down. I would dress up. I would wear a gown. <laughs> because I would wear, because like you have less time so you can spend more money on how you flex. Um, 
Uh, I mean, it's been, I'll be honest, guys, this has not been a fun time for me. <laughs> Just not been great. Controversial statements um, from Lou. I don't know. I don't know if other people have been feeling off the past couple of months, but, you know, <laughs> my, minus minus the mass death that's happening. But the, the, the fact that um, almost all, also businesses, everything, the fact that we were hanging on, on such a hair that right. it took at least two months to be like, well, everything's shut down. Like the theater that I worked at, it's gone now. doesn't exist. Maybe not coming back. So like, the, like and if that's for businesses, it trickled down. It's shitty for everyone who's working down, uh, uh, especially on the labor end. I feel like there's such a discrepancy in yeah. terms of, what people are considering. And that's what's so funny about this article. It does sound like it's from like a boss. It's like, well, oh, maybe less days. But it's like, for who? Yeah, exactly. For, for who? who? Right. Because like, I'll be honest, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm working maybe like when I was freelancing two or three times a, a week. And I'll be honest, it was great. But also the stress of being poor doesn't take a day off. No. <laughs> it doesn't take it. It's not like, you know what, Tuesday, my bills aren't around on Tuesday. No, they're still right, there. Right, right. So, no, exactly. So it's it's about um giving people a means to live first. Yeah. Right. Let I know. I exist. Yes. These I, I feel like we're stuck in this vortex of think pieces that are written for people who have really comfortable salaries and they can work remotely so easily and 401ks. And it's just, and it's, I mean, look, and I'm lucky. Okay. Like I have a, um, different jobs still. Um, do my jobs pay less? Yes, they do. However, I still have to, I mean, I'm one of the lucky ones. Um, and I'm also tired of pretending like I'm so lucky just because I'm not, like homeless, right? Like there should be, we should have a standard in America where we are like, no, everyone should have a, a minimum that involves, you know, stable home, food, you know what I mean? All of those things should just be a given. We're the richest country in the world. I mean, what the fuck? But, um, I, I but I am tired of this vortex of think pieces that are from the, that, that are, the in this they have this question exactly uh lou of for who right like who are you writing this about um so let's let's talk about it. in in the same vein um the the future of offices um secretary castro you've uh you've been in some offices um <laughs> do you wish to return to offices the physical space uh you know yeah, every now and then I miss it, but not as much as I thought I would. You know, you just you get used to doing that, right? Of course, for me, I mean, the last three years have been different. Um, you know, I was on the campaign trail for a long time, and then before then, right. I was teaching at the LBJ School at UT. So I haven't been going into an office regularly since HUD, since the end of the Obama administration, and uh, I don't miss it most days. Uh, I do think that I do think you know I hear from a surprising number of people that because they had they're so they were so used to it and haven't done it in a while, like they wish they could go into the office just for a little bit. But I think they get it out of their system pretty quickly when they go in. Uh, coming out of this, there's no question that a lot of companies out there are going to have a, sh a smaller footprint. 
they're not going to have as many employees, I think, going into a traditional office setting uh, because you know how these companies are, right? They're always trying to cut costs, um, mm. you know, do what they can to, to save money. And if, if they have found that they can get the same productivity uh, and work performance from people working remotely, then I think a lot of them are going to hold on to that. And, you know, for some people, mm -hmm. they'll welcome that. For others, um, you know, they, they won't like it. Uh, for me, you know, it's been okay. But I know people that, that they say, look, you know, if I want to get things done, I need to be in an office setting. It's just different. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because like out of, um, and Lou, I wonder if you thought this was interesting, like, Apparently, the tech sector is a little bit divided on this. Satya Nadella, the chief executive of Microsoft, he said, um, what does burnout look like? What does mental health look like? What does that connectivity and community building look like? Um, you know, the, uh, people like him and Amazon are, are basically signaling that, like, no, that rem remote work is not what we're going to embrace after this pandemic because, um it's fundamentally antisocial and may not actually lead to like a workers being happy. Uh, Lou, what did you think of that? I mean, I think there's a lot that, I think there's so much accuracy in that. Number one, you know, not everyone, it, the, just think of the mental space when you're working that you're in and then associating that to a place is helpful and then you can separate from that and then go home. If you cannot separate from that image or space in home, then you are never leaving work. Right, um, right. Uh, yeah. I think that's a huge factor. I think also just being able to communicate with people. We're social creatures. I think a huge part of the reason why everyone's freaking out, minus, you know, obvious the obvious yeah. death that's at right. the front door, is that we thrive on talking to people or just having people around. Yes. Um, some of us, I mean, I'm a very antisocial person. I truly could go days without talking <laughs> to people. I <laughs> love it. Like, I, I love having days to myself, but I do want to see people. I do want to talk to people. I do want to communicate. It's just different. It's a necessary part of my existence as this creature, whatever, human, right, whatever you want to call right. me. But, like, right. it's a huge part of that. So I can see, I can see how it's beneficial financially. But also, if you're going to do that, maybe pay me more. Are they going to do that? Like, if I'm going to be remote paid and you're saving all that money on property, are you paying me more? Probably not. Wait, so can I talk about how weird it is that the idea that someone, you know, like that, like a Facebook or something would reduce their physical footprint because... The one thing that I haven't seen very much written about is the rise of the co-working space, like the WeWorks and the Wings and in all of the independent places all over the country that cr that popped up because before the pandemic, there was plenty of freelance people like myself who became members of co-working spaces. Why? Because we hate working from home. <laughs> and I'm one of those people. I truly <laughs> detest it. This was not supposed to be. I'm a water cooler kind of guy. I like walking over to the water cooler. Hey, Kathy. Hey, John. How's it going? Looking good. Those little interactions keep me going for the rest of the day that I have to work, right? And, um... And the reason those things became so popular is because freelancers wanted a place to go that wasn't their bedroom. Um, 
It would be weird for Facebook, for example, to shut down all of its things only to give rise to co-working spaces that are essentially mimicking an office anyway. You know what I mean? So I feel like that's a part of the equation. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. That. <laughs> You're, that's a good point. I haven't heard how they're doing, uh, except probably not very well right now, those right. co-workings. But, but that definitely did represent, uh, you know, a desire among people to have a place to actually be separate from just trying to work, um, you know, in their, in their dining room or their living room, or even if they had a, a home office. Yeah. And also like, how am I going to buy my Girl Scout cookies when I don't run into a parent <laughs> that's selling Girl Scout cookies? <laughs> I mean, that is the part of being the social of like, you know, we, and that the thing that worries me too is like, if people are now going to suburbanize more, right? Or are people going to, you know, um, go and live in their, <laughs> their second homes if you're a very rich person? Um, what is, you know, and then and then also not go into an office. It's like we're going further and further and further into this, like, internal silo where we just read about QAnon and never see people. You know what I mean? Like, it worries me that we might do that. I think, I think it's becoming more and more a part of our day-to-day in terms of transferring how we communicate less in person and more digitally. Um, and I think, we, I think you're seeing it also generationally, you know, um, uh, as people are coming up, how they interact. I'll be honest, I, I don't know if I just taught a, a class with teens on Monday. I don't know if people have always been this awkward but these kids are awkward. <laughs> I was like, teens how does this... are awkward. Teen, listen, I've been an awkward teen too, but I'm just like, this is another level where they're just like, <laughs> right. they're, they're seeking to look somewhere else and that somewhere else is not to another person, but to their phone to escape from the awkwardness of human interaction. <laughs> right. No, like, it's, I mean, I did a, I did stand up. Um, I've done a couple, a few live stand up shows and the first, you know, I was like, I mean, I, I've, you know, I'm a professional comedian, so like, it's not a big deal to do that. But like, to do live shows after you haven't done them for six months, I was schwitzing. I was like weird. I was so nervous. You know, we're, we're all kind of getting our sea legs back on how to be around other people. Um, and I'm actually really happy to hear that you saw teens that were doing that. You know what I mean? Because they yeah. need they need you. They need to do it. They need you. Um, Secretary Castro, I want to give you the last word. You actually strike me, <laughs> and from this brief Zoom call, as someone who's super zen, being at home, is that accurate? And do you have a secret to share with the world on how you're so zen about it? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty calm, pretty low key. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know that I have a secret except trying to keep things always in perspective and uh, have a family that helps keep me grounded. Um, yeah, that's my, I haven't taken up meditation. I am working out a lot more with all, you know, with being here at home which has been weird because a lot of people that go to gyms all the time, since those gyms have been closed, it's sort of thrown them off. I've been kind of the opposite and right, working out right. has helped, you know, helped keep my sanity. But 
that's it. Yeah, you're you're not doing the the pandemic fifteen. You're doing the pandemic negative fifteen. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm looking yeah. jacked. Yeah, I gotta yeah. be honest. It's uh, hopefully not a, a totally inappropriate to say that you're looking jacked. <laughs> oh, it's fully inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we like to close the show um, by asking what what uh, has made you feel hopeful recently. But all, but we can also sort of like evolve that question into what is keeping you going? Like we're in the middle of this insane election cycle. There's just so much noise and anxiety. Um, you know, Secretary Castro, is there something that's keeping you going? Is there something that's making you hopeful? What give us some inspiring words? I think this week, uh, the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of Justice Ginsburg, to think about everything that she overcame and how she kept pushing and pushing and pushing from you think about the beginning of her life versus the end, and not only everything that she did, but everything that she was a part of creating for the country and the ability of, of, women and of everybody, of people of color, to fulfill their dreams in this country during that time span, what a difference that made. It's just, it's a very poignant reminder, I think, that that one person can make a difference. And, you know, very few of us are actually going to be anywhere near what Ruth Bader Ginsburg was. But in our own way, we can still make a difference. And I think there's a hopefulness in that. And it's so opposite from, from the leadership that we have right now um, that it reminds you that we can make a change, too. I love that because, yeah, like we're not all going to have the same impact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did, right? But it doesn't even have to be like we don't have to think about it on such a macro level. It can be, you know, the the impact that you have on your block, that you have on your building, that you have in your park that you, you know what Absolutely. I mean? There's there are there are things on a much on a micro level that are so, so meaningful to people's everyday lives um, that that you that, you know, you can let Ruth Bader Ginsburg seep into you and and then come out of your face hole. <laughs> Lou, what what's keeping you going? Um uh, people just people in general. Just like uh and, and that's not even like a joke, but like just like conversing with family and friends um starting and creating and keeping things social, the class that I taught earlier you're seeing that there's people and they're still here and, you know, it feels sometimes overwhelming because we're sort of in a bubble of all of the world's problems rather than understanding that things, like you said, things are smaller. And also, like, you know, I don't think Ruth Bader Ginsburg thought she was going to do what she was doing. Like, she, like, no one does. And also, it's like, don't strive for that. Strive for small change. And I think, like, I'm having my dad come over to fix my fan. I'm excited to see him scream at me. <laughs> like, I'm excited. Like, I'm looking forward to that. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to my father not trusting me fixing things. And <laughs> me, me just being like, well, I, I could do this. You could just tell me how to do it. And then he's just going to be like, no. And, like, before, before all this, I would have dreaded it. Now, 
I'm I'm gonna I'll probably cry. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that. And I um and 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 similarly, people are keeping me going because, um, like I mentioned, I I did some stand up recently. New York Comedy Club, which is a club I love, um, is doing a lot of rooftop shows. And what's really remarkable is that people are going they're like putting on their best outfits you know they're being flirty and laughing and they're um we like we can keep living like that's okay you know what I mean we can still have enjoyment um and we need to be able to do that to be energized about this election and to treat democracy like it is something that's fun and engaging and not a slog. Um, and so I, I want to think of, um, you know, and I see, I see people volunteering to, to, to get more people to fill out their census, census forms, um, in a park nearby. I mean, these people are there like multiple days of the week and I'm just blessed them. They keep me going cause they're, and they're fun and they're smiling and they're chatting and, uh, this doesn't have to be a slog. Like it can be about fun and it can be about community. And I love seeing that. Um, but what I would love for the people of Faith the Nation is to know where to find you and all the good works you're doing. Secretary Castro, tell us, remind us of the podcast as well. The podcast is called Our America and folks can find it wherever they get their podcasts. I'm also on Twitter at my name, Julian Castro, or Instagram at Julian Castro TX. Lou, where do they find you? Uh, you can find me on all social media for at Angry Lou. Angry Lou, L-O-U. Um, <laughs> you find me on the Twitter. You find me on the Insta. Um, uh, spouting different thoughts and taking different pictures. um follow angry lou subscribe to uh the our america podcast it's so delightful and like i said lovely um and just really good and inspiring um and gave me all the feels and uh and lou i can't wait to see you perform live again that would make me really happy oh my goodness (laughs) i'm ready for it what I would really like to do is thank the people that make Fake the Nation possible. Uh, that is our production team here at Fake the Nation. Anita Flores, our producer, our audio engineer is Andy Christens. Gabby Alter wrote her theme music. Lily Fleshler helps with research. And listeners, you know we love to hear from you. Send us your feedback, topics we should be chatting about, guest ideas. You can leave us a voicemail at 331-901-0005 or drop us a line at comments at fakethenation.com. And don't forget to tell us the races, uh, races to watch. Um, where where are you and where does the race that you're super into? If you like what you hear, leave um, leave, uh, leave us a, whatchamacallit, what do you call those? Reviews on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find the show. Subscribe on Stitcher. Follow us on Spotify. Uh, do all of those things because that really helps. And folks, uh, thank you so much. We will be back in your earballs next week. <laughs>